So this evening, I'm going to kind of come back at uh, our use of resources, and I'm going to talk about consumer addiction, which is real, I have to say, and I'm sure some of you sitting here after Christmas might be thinking, hmm, maybe I got a bit too carried away. So uh, I'm going to start with a, an amazing quote from the Chicago Tribune, Christmas Eve 1986, where they had as headlines, we've become a nation measuring out our lives in shopping bags and nursing our psychic ills through retail therapy. So I think that kind of sets the scene that we've been at this for a long time. So I want to just take us back a little bit as to, you know, why are we worried about consumer uh, presence everywhere? Why, why do we think that it's become an addiction? And in a sense, what are the consequences? And I can't believe that uh, anyone in this room hasn't thought or heard or has a view on climate change. But in the larger context of sustainable development, consumerism is a fairly serious, pernicious process that really needs to be addressed in that broader context. So about uh, four years after the financial crisis in 2008, the heads of state got together and essentially when they met in Rio, they agreed on something called the future we want. And that document really took, it took sort of stock of what the major economies were looking like, having recovered from the financial crisis. And what they had was a common vision. Um, and in a way, a renewed commitment to sustainable development. 20 years earlier, they'd had Agenda 21, which has set out a whole range of things which were really talking about how we were going to live sustainably on planet Earth. But the driver for all of this was that unsustainable patterns of consumption and production were what was causing environmental deterioration. So we're talking, you know, 1992, well understood. 2002, well understood. 2012, we're absolutely clear that this is the message. And yet, we have seen no diminution at all in our consumer trends. So, not to look in any individual detail, but every single curve tells the same story. We've got fundamental changes going on. Um, it's called the Great Acceleration. And essentially, whether you're looking at tourism, paper production, water use, foreign direct investment, even GDP, every single part of this is telling us that our society, certainly since the 1950s, has just accelerated in its use of pretty much everything. So the idea about doing more with less hasn't really kind of come into our thinking until recently. And why is that? Well, it's very clear that some of the resources we have are beginning to run out, or at least they're much harder to find. Virgin resources are causing problems uh, from a mining perspective, from just an environmental perspective, but also in terms of uh, livelihoods and a just access and so forth. So what has really been put centre stage inside the sustainable consumption and production agenda is a kind of toolkit that talks about life cycle analysis. In other words, instead of having the make, buy, throw away culture, the kind of linear trend, they're, they're really pressing, everyone is pressing, that we now have to take care and have a life cycle approach. So 
where does that fit with consumerism? Because in a sense, as I'll tell you at the end, this addiction is actually contrary to that. It's just a case of wanting more and not really thinking about what you do with the product once you've thrown it away. So this continuous acceleration, the great acceleration as it's known, is really contrary to anything that we want to consider when it comes to the impact on the environment. And so this is like the counterpart, this is the, the underbelly of that great acceleration, where you can see precisely the same picture coming in from every angle, which is to do with nitrogen in the coastal areas, biosphere degradation, um, loss of tropical forests, ocean acidification. So these hallmarks are what really make our Anthropocene. Now, you might ask yourself, what do, what do I have to do with that? You know, where does consumerism fit into all of that? Well, in fact, it's the very, very core driver of all of these patterns. Because without consumers, without people purchasing and buying things, it goes without saying that these patterns wouldn't exist. Now, if we look at some of the, the major trends around the world to do with our absolute and per capita emissions in something called the Emissions Gap Report, this sort of summarizes where we are. You can see that, in fact, many, many countries have just literally taken off. So you can see China in terms of absolute terms and per capita terms. You can see that American uh, per capita emissions are beginning to come down, despite what people say. Uh, but you can see that there's a big, big jump in countries like um, China. And despite best efforts, the EU is just, just, just coming down in very small proportions. But essentially, the overarching picture in absolute terms, which is the one we need to pay attention to, is beginning to cause us great problems. Now, these emissions are directly linked to our consumption. And when we think about where does it all add up to, we have something which looks a little complicated, but effectively it's telling us that come sort of 2030, we need to have radically changed the amount that we're putting into the atmosphere of emissions of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gas emissions. So the gap, as it's called, the emissions gap, is effectively 32 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalents each and every year. And that means that we have to ramp down from the path that we're on, the line that's towards the top, and we really need to be heading almost straight down to the, straight down to the um, x-axis to really make sure that we stay somehow on our pathway towards 1.5 degrees, or if we've lost hope in that, even 2 degrees. So 32 gigatons per year, and if you add all of that up, we really don't have um, much left in the bank account, so to speak, of emissions left where we can stray. Most of that, unfortunately, is made up of our consumption. So I have a small little video which I'd just like to show if I could, please. Yes. <laughs> 
Okay, so we have a big problem in front of us. We, in a sense, understand, as you saw in the film, that solutions can come from green technologies, from cleaner energy, and so forth. But there's a problem because, as we've known from uh, Jenkins from a long, long time ago, that if you make something more efficient, actually you start using more of it. It's called the rebound effect. And it was first thought about in the, in the context of coal, where coal and engines and steam engines came along that were more efficient. And the idea that people got in their minds was that this was going to be the demise of the coal industry. But of course it wasn't, because as railway engines became more efficient, then they just had more of them, so then more coal was needed. And because the price was never there to dampen it down, it just meant that more and more coal was consumed. And this is what we're finding once again with electronics, with green energy and so forth. We have in our mind that things are very efficient, resource efficient. You have efficient washing machines, you have different household appliances that are A-starred and whatever which makes you feel really good when you have it in your house. And I'm not saying you'll go away and renew it rather quickly, but it, what it means is that more and more appliances and so forth are actually bought because everybody feels very good when they buy that first one because they see that it's got a green label on it. But all that's doing is just simply putting more and more products into the marketplace. So when we look at the drivers of change that we're going to have to tack, attack in, in no means uh, form, we're looking at literally all parts of our society, whether it's the way in which we're going to live in cities and consume not only energy, but also the things that we see as services. So when you call an Uber or you call a taxi or you call whatever service it is, thinking in a sense that you've done a very good job by not owning a car, you're only partway there because, of course, you are using, in a sense, transport, which, in a sense, needs to be calculated. So as we go around the drivers of change, you realize that by the time you get to number six, which is about diversifying values, lifestyles, and, and so forth, that actually human behavior is in every one of these drivers, everything that we do. Now, can we lay that at the foot of our consumption? Unfortunately, the evidence is unequivocally yes. So, how to proceed? Is it by having your own personal lifestyle calculator, where you, in a sense, are able, when you walk into every store, to find the calculator that tells you precisely not just the emissions, but where each and every one of the uh, various things that have gone into that product have come from, the, the miles that have been taken to deliver it, and so on and so forth? Well, unfortunately, the psychological side of this shows that when people go into supermarkets, and there's wonderful films of this, they'll go along and they'll take things and they'll be looking at, for example, a tin of something, and they'll read it, and, oh, yeah, and then, oh, like that one better. Can't really say why, probably the colour of the tin or whatever. And meanwhile, on the back is a label that tells them about everything that is in the tin, where the tin has come from, and so on and so forth. It is the very, very last thing that consumers look at. So even if we have an effective labelling system, actually people don't read it. They don't take the time to read it. Now, maybe this is an audience, a very special audience, where you do go and look at labels. But on the whole, people do not. And I'll come to that because it's about the psychology of the rush buying and the, and the sort of immediacy of being in that environment where you're going to buy something, you're going to purchase something, and what happens in your brain, which has to do with dopamine and other things. So we have to tackle every part of this 
in a, in a completely different way, in a systemic way, which gives not only logic, but gives a kind of emotional feeling that you're on the right path and that actually everybody else is on the same path with you. Just recently, um, a book, well, it's come out in one form, it will be coming out again in February in, in hard copy, called The Empty Planet. Now, one of the drivers for consumption, of course, is population size. Um, I'm sure nearly everybody in the room uh, will realize, of course, that population has been increasing from, you know, two or three billion up to 7.6 and, and up. And those are the numbers that we hear all the time. It's one of the major drivers for lots of policies to do with consumption and production. Because if you start working out the per capita consumption and you think, well, if you're on a planet of 10 billion people, you need so much more food, you need so much more water, etc., etc. Now, this book is very interesting by Bricker and Ibbotson because they've gone around the world to Florida, Sao Paulo, various other places. What they've been discovering is that perhaps the figures are not actually what is coming through in the statistical system. That rather we're seeing many, many places where replacement populations are below, uh, where populations are below replacement. In other words, 1.6, 1.4, 1.8. Now, whether countries decide to do something about that is a, is a matter of some uh, debate, political debate. In Denmark, for example, when they saw the population uh, numbers going down and the fertility presumably in some sense, or decisions making it that couples were having far less than two replacement, they put in place many policies to enhance the chance of couples having children. But what this looks at is underneath the statistics that there may be a separate case, including for how we calculate consumption, that is that this might end up being a rather empty planet. Unfortunately, that brings along a whole raft of other problems. For example, it could lead to, yes, less inequality and more innovation, which would be good, less famine and, and more, inf uh, more affluence. However, you will have an aging population. And that in itself will create problems about worker shortages, could weaken the economy. Um, certainly, it would put a lot of strain on our, our basic services and healthcare. But most importantly, people would have to change their behaviours and particularly consumption patterns. So, in a sense, standing where we are at the beginning of this new decade, there are many things ahead of us, a lot of which is uncertain. But one thing that is certain is that our per capita consumption is out of control, that we cannot literally sustain the levels of consumption that we have today and keep any sense of proportion vis-a-vis -vis peace, stability, and sustainability on the basis of the pathways which we have set about. Why do we say that? Well, if you look, for example, in Europe, and you look at what's called the actual individual consumption in comparison to GDP, you see some rather interesting things. So the GDP, which is in the, in the blue, you see has, in some senses, got some interesting patterns. Luxembourg is always a bit weird because people go back and forth over the border and they go and spend money in different places and they come back with some forwards and they buy petrol in Luxembourg and do all kinds of weird things. But Ireland is second in the GDP, which is kind of interesting. So a way to kind of understand what all of that means is to go back and look at the, what's called the actual individual consumption. 
And there you see that, yes, of course, there are differences between some countries, for example, Albania and Bosnia-Herzegovina and others, but in the sort of core area, France, Germany, UK, they're all rather similar. And so we have this process of called uh, deriving the, this, the purchasing price parity to make comparisons. So you, know, you buy a hamburger in the UK, it's £2.20, and you go to France and it's £2.84, and you'll probably think you're relatively well off. You know, it's kind of about the same price. Um, but that's not true for all things. So it's really quite uh, striking that when we start to look at AICs around the world, you see that price doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of those resources. And this is one of the fundamental issues that we have, which is if we want to have an equivalent price of carbon all over the world, that necessarily drives economies in a particular way. And because most of what you consume actually will require energy and resources to do that, it should in principle mean that if you buy a Lego kit in Denmark and you buy a Lego kit in the UK and you buy a Lego kit in Kenya, actually the price should be about the same because if you took into account all of the external and all of the environmental factors, that would tell you what the price would be. Now, of course, it relates also to currency and it relates to many other things. But if you were to take a life cycle approach, that's probably a pretty good solution. Now, there are very few countries who are willing, in a way, to price the basics of life, including fuel, uh, other forms of energy, access to water and so forth, at their true price. But, you know, there are ways to accommodate those that would be hit the worst, for example, the poorest, because in a sense you can put in policies that will take care of that if you explicitly want to address the issue of regulating consumption. So when, for example, President Macron decided to raise the prices of, let's say, um, price on the transportation on railways, uh, he did it in isolation. What you actually have to do is go back to that picture of the whole system and understand that you can't intervene in one place without accommodating people in other settings. So our consumer addictions are, in a way, a kind of perverse process, living off vicariously resources that are usually not properly priced, where the disposal and the use of resources is not factored into the price at all. Why do I say that? Well, it's because, in principle, people are very price-sensitive, extremely price-sensitive, more than one could actually imagine. And this is part of the key to tackling consumer addiction. So if we set the price of fuel, and then you let it increase 5% every single year, the tax on it every single year, you would sort of dampen down each time how much fuel people used. Now, yes, it can be extremely negative for certain parts of society, but targeting that, you can, for example, offset it by having some energy subsidies or you can have free access to various parts. So it's not beyond the wit of governments to deal with this, but it requires a very brave government to be able to take this on because you tamper with every part of the economy. So let's just think about food. This is one of our deep addictions. Food is kind of central to everything you can think about. And here we can see a picture 
and there's a whole raft of them taken by some researchers quite some time ago, but I think you can pretty much recognise still all the products there. The dog does very well, I have to tell you, in this picture, extremely well. Um, there's a whole, whole sort of part of the picture just for the dog. Um, so, you know, we've got deep, crispy uh, pizzas and so on. When you look at what a family uses and consumes in a week, in some parts of the world, it's, it's quite extraordinary. But anyway, in the UK, we're, we're quite modest, I can tell you. But notice how much packaging and how much is actually wrapped up in plastics and so forth. Now let's go to a family in Ecuador and uh, completely different, totally different. No, no packaging other than the big sacks. Um, certainly a preponderance of pulses and, and vegetables, but there is also some meat there as well. And so when you think about food, you know you can genuinely make choices. And food is one of the routes where consumer addiction can really take, take hold. So... There are alternatives and there are choices. Here, for example, is the family from the, from the US on the right-hand side and in Bhutan on the left. Regardless of volume, it really does come down to a matter of choice. I say that because, as many of you know, I live in, a, I live in the Maasai Mara, in a, in a tribe, in a hut, where there's not much food choice, I can definitely tell you that, and there's not a lot of food. But actually, people live extremely well and very healthily now, and they've got clean water. So there are choices that can take you down from this picture to something which is closer to potentially something far less environmentally harmful. And meat within the food setting and food addiction is clearly an area which has got everyone's attention. So the Greens and, the, conser and the, um, the, the, the conservationists have said a lot about meat and meat-eating and generally have made predictions about how much meat-eating meat is going to, is currently and is going, uh, will contribute to climate change. And you can see, despite all of the hype, that actually meat production has gone up, particularly in Asia, but in many other parts of the world as well. Now, what kind of meat is actually really important because what you do see is preferences. So in the US over the last 40 years, you've seen actually a big shift. So today you have about 50% is red meat, about 42% is poultry, 7% is fish. In the 1960s, poultry was only a quarter of that. It's like 25%. Now, when people look at that and they do surveys and they try to find out, people are kind of halfway between. We're doing it for our health and we're doing it for the environment. So there is actually a very strong message, a mixed message, I would say, that's beginning to pervade into people's behavior and consumer patterns when it comes to meat. If you look at meat consumption, however, it's quite a different story because you can definitely see that the volumes are extremely high. So, for example, in the US, you're looking at 80 to 100 kilos per person per year. In a place like Rwanda or Nigeria or Ethiopia, it's about seven. Where I live in my village, it's about two and a half kilos of meat a year. So, you know, there are massive differences between how much meat is actually eaten. Now, in the UK, there has been a shift, and it's quite interesting in the last year, Sainsbury's and other big supermarkets have been monitoring this shift in consumer 
behavior towards meat. And an amazing figure is that in last year alone, when they calculated the shift towards plant-based food, they calculated there were savings of 6.7 billion pounds to consumers who took that on. That's like 500 pounds per consumer per year. So when they were doing surveys about, well, why did you shift? Obviously, a lot of people said, because of the environment. But the vast majority of people said, because of costs, because of price, because of affordability. And so this comes back to the age-old question when it comes to food. Are we pricing our food in the correct way? And is that, in a way, uh, a mechanism whereby we can undo some of the addictions that we see? If you were to properly price, for example, uh, sugar in the sense that it would be taken on board as far as its environmental footprint, it probably wouldn't be much more than it is today on the shelf. But if you were to actually price all of the other kinds of things that go into food, some of the additives and so on and so forth, it's very clear that some early calculations show that pretty much all processed food is underpriced by at least 40%. So the biscuits you buy, the, the pies that you buy, all of those are absolutely underpriced if you were to take into account the environmental impacts. So we can hope, I guess in one sense, that if you got, if you got perfect pricing in terms of environmental footprints, you might be able to undo some of those addictive behaviours that take people towards the kinds of foodstuffs that lead ultimately, unfortunately, to things like obesity. So changing patterns of meat consumption is absolutely doable. There's no reason why we can't get there, partly through messaging, but also partly through, uh, simply through price. And you have interesting anomalies. For example, India. So they have a threefold increase in GDP. So people have got money, they can buy meat, but it's not that they're vegetarian because two thirds of the population do actually eat meat. They just don't eat a lot of meat. Eat about uh, five, four, 4.8 kilos a year on average. So that's not a lot of meat when you compare it to, for example, in the US and when you compare it to the, to the EU. But what we see in the UK is this new form of I guess, a diet called flexitarianism. And in the last study that uh, the, the, the largest supermarkets did and another 2,000 people who were surveyed um, across, the, across the board, this turns out to be 91% of people would categorize themselves as flexitarians. Now, I don't know whether you're a flexitarian, but it, it's, a, it's a very striking shift that in a very short period of time, people have made that shift from being eating meat maybe two or three times a week to something which they now call flexitarianism. So it can happen very quickly. But in the food industry, it's usually considered to be something of a miracle if you can do it under two, to two years. And in the fishing industry, it's recognized that if you want to change a particular fish product, it might take you up to 10 years to change people's behaviors. Um, I don't know if any of you remember fish sticks. 
It took a long time for fish sticks to take off. And it's just people were not very happy with fish sticks, I can tell you. Put, you know, putting crab juice in it to make it taste like a crab, but it wasn't really a crab and so forth. So, you know, you, you know the consumer is not stupid. So, uh, but, but some products actually take off much more quickly. So if you want to tackle consumer addiction, you really have to understand what is the specifics that will get people to switch. So flexitarianism, we should do more research on it, obviously, to find out why are people moving. But a very, very strong part of it is the price. Just looking at the serving sizes is quite extraordinary. Those of you who are old enough might remember going to um, your local burger, no names mentioned, and uh, begins with a W, probably not an M. And um, remember that one on the left-hand side, a poor relation to what you can get today uh, and, and even more, and, you know, the supersizing and so on. So, again, understanding what choices are being put in front of you is also part of this addictive behaviour that's been built into us. When we think about how we're going to get to creating enough food, one of the challenges has to be how much food is lost. And this is, a, I think, it's a, a rather simple um, sort of statement, but what lies behind it is actually very serious. So here's the amount of food that we lose on the way to getting to you in the supermarket or in the shops. And imagine in Central and Southern Asia, they're losing sort of 20%. Even in North America, they're losing 16%, Sub-Saharan Africa, 14%, and so on. So these are massive losses. When you look at the commodities, though, you can see that the, the roots and the tubers and the oil bearing, they actually spoil very quickly. But also animal and meat products, as well as fruit and vegetables. So it really matters when you're thinking about food and how we're getting food to the retailers and how we're getting it to consumers, how much we're losing in terms of all those emissions and all of the environmental damage. So it's not so simple as to say, well, okay, I want to eat an avocado today, and the avocado is coming from Peru. Okay, what shall I do? My doctor tells me I have to have metabolic renewal, so I've got to eat a lot of avocados but it's coming from Peru. So am I going to be more stressed by eating the avocado from Peru, or am I going to be more stressed by not eating the avocado because I'll probably eat a piece of bread instead, which is not very good. So all the time, we're making choices. We're making choices. And when you make those choices, of course, you need to have good, solid information. Now, if I was told that my avocado came off a tree was picked and put very gently inside some, let's say, biodegradable packaging, and that it was brought on a ship or maybe something else to bring it to me, I might have a slightly different view than if I knew that it had been picked unripe, put into a hydrogen sulfide container, put onto an aeroplane, and then shipped to my local supermarket, where I'd buy it hard as a bullet, I'd put it in my house, and I'd wait for it. Now, I don't know how many of you are addicted to, to avocados, but it does seem there's a lot of people eat avocados in this country. I have the pleasure of having an avocado tree where I live in, in Africa, so I just go out and I pick an avocado and so on, so I can satiate my avocado addiction whilst I'm there. But when I come here, of course, I restrain myself. I don't eat avocados when I'm here. Um, but, but it is quite clear that 
when we have prognostications to do with our health, we're going to want to follow those up because it's very personal. And so we're forced all the time into a dilemma of choices as to how we should proceed. And on the whole, we simply don't have enough information to be able to evaluate that effectively. The next area that we really don't have enough information to effectively assess our addictions is in the fashion and apparel world. Now, I don't know how many of you have been out recently with young people going to buy things, but I have detected that there is a significant shift. When I was growing up, I mean, it was fun to go shopping, but there wasn't much in the shops, so you, know, you make your own clothes and so on. Then there's this sort of wow period where you can go and buy everything and anything. And you know, I lived in North America, and you know, it was consumerism on steroids. It was incredible. But recently, it's become noticeable, and we've been doing some surveys. I did one in Canada and a few other countries, where if you talk to young people, they're knowledgeable and they notice brands, but they're much more interested in what those brands mean in terms of the environment, how long they're going to last, are they sustainable, um, and so on and so forth. So it's clear that education and changing perceptions are beginning <coughs> to work their way into the psyche of people in their, let's say, 18 to 20-year-olds, uh, in, their, in their 20s. However, there's an enormous buying public in the sort of 30 and upwards age range, a lot of us. And we are obsessed, whether you like to admit it or not, with brands. Um, however, the fashion industry has understood all too well that they are one of the large emitters when it comes to not only producing the textiles, but shipping them around and so on and so forth. And so they've been coming back with some kind of interesting ways to divert away from the heavy fossil fuel intensive production into different forms of clothing and apparel. And so you're beginning to see new kinds of labeling. So local, you know, the idea of course is minimizing your carbon footprint. Minimalism, you don't need as much Let's give you something that will last a long time and then you, know, you can feel proud about having something that lasts and so on. Organic cotton, still very controversial because you do need a lot of water and you do need many other things, but nevertheless, it does actually avoid having pesticides. If you go on, there are other things that are coming into the marketplace. Labels that talk about the fact that they've been swapped. So clothing swapped. I don't know how many of you have done a clothing swap, but there are now labels that are appearing. Slow fashion, um, environmentally friendly by producing fewer. So there are designers who are literally talking about being <laughs> slow fashion designers. I'm not quite sure that's a selling feature, but anyway, slow fashion designers. Right, second hand. Well, we all know that the, the second hand shops are having a, a heyday these days about you know, reusing and recycling. And then fair fashion, making sure like fair trade, that fair wages are paid and also vegan. So this is looking at new materials, things like Pinatex, lensing, tensile, cork, Cecil, microworks. These are all new materials that are coming into the marketplace which have a vegan basis to them. So it's quite extraordinary the proliferation of choice that people actually have. Does that do anything to stop consumer addiction? And this is really interesting. It turns out that 
a lot of young people in that age range are looking at labels. They're looking at labels in a very different way, though. They're looking at labels in the sense of what does it mean for me, but also what does it mean for the planet? And when they're interviewed, they'll always talk about why they've bought, for example, a piece of vegan clothing, why they've bought clothing that's labelled as fair fashion. So in a sense, what the fashion industry has understood is, yes, it's highly addictive. What they sell is highly addictive. But by taking care and labelling carefully, they've got a new consumer base that's paying attention. So it's not branded, it's labelled. And that's the big shift. That is one of the big differences, because then you have a proliferation. And in a sense, it is a kind of pseudo-brand. But it's a different way of achieving the kind of sustainable outcomes that we're looking for. So if you were to genuinely look in your cupboard and say, OK, I bought a lot of shoes over the last four or five years, and, uh, but was I really aware of the choices that I made? Did I really know where those shoes came from? Did I understand the impact of them? Did I ever wear them? Maybe you didn't. Maybe you have many things in your cupboards that you didn't wear. Maybe there are things you should recycle, but that's another matter. Um, but it's very, very clear now that in this uh, wave of looking at how we consume and asking the question, you know, are we addicted to consumption in all of its forms? As soon as you start to put consequences on the table, it is another trigger that helps people to step back for one moment and to think again. So now we've got two triggers. We've got price, obviously very important, and we've got the consequences of the choice. And the more that you make that consequence linked to human behaviour and other humans in other parts of the world, what we see from studies is that that is another way to trigger a different response in the brains of the consumer. So we've got two things now to work with. So what causes choices? You know, so you're going out the day, you're going to go out shopping with your friends, and what has to do with... The first thing is ex the sort of external things. And you see, walking into a shop and it's affordable, it's accessible, it's available, it fits me, I'm happy, I'm going to buy it. And then internal, you know, what's motivating me? Well, quite often it's who you're with, um, it's sort of emo it's an emotion, it's a, an impulse, it's, it's essentially what others are doing around me. And there are many, many things happening as I go into a shop to buy something. And very few of them are kind of made on a process of thinking it through. But what we can see is that as we train people, as we talk about this more and more, asking people to think about the consequences of what they're buying, what we're trying to do is to introduce a moment which the prefrontal cortex gets, which says, I'm going to think just for a moment before I take my credit card out and I buy it. Consumer addiction is real. There, there is no doubt about it. Um, but what we are seeing is that other things are coming in to help and to change the way in which we buy and which we consume. So when we look at uh, things like online shopping, so why do people buy things? Well, it turns out for a whole raft of reasons. They don't always buy it for the reason that it says on the box. Um, for example, people buy it for, let me just read it, escape, 
entertainment, rejuvenation, uh, it eases transitions, rich source of mental preparation. There's all kinds of reasons that people give. Um, it's going to inspire confidence. For example, a group of people were given white coats, which they were told belonged to doctors. And then they were asked to do various tests. And when they did those tests, they basically were much, much... They had a higher attentional focus. They were more concentrated than the people who were wearing street clothes. So it just tells you you can do all kinds of things with people. So <laughs> put white coats and so on. But it, it's really important. So online shopping, it turns out, when you analyse and you talk to people about why they do online shopping, even if they don't make a purchase, I've heard phrases like, it's like a mini vacation, but you don't have to pack. Okay, you know, so clearly people are motivated to do things in the sense of wanting to have some downtime, wanting to have some pleasure, and to enjoy themselves. What is it that they're doing when you walk into a shop, when you go online, when you see all these things that you might or might not want to buy, window shopping? What you're actually doing is bringing in dopamine. It's actually a, a neurotransmitter that works and is the basis of addiction. Now, there's really interesting uh, research on how dopamine works, but one of the things I like is that in some animals, we have seen that dopamine is actually released in anticipation of a reward, not necessarily in getting the reward. So along the same lines, if you essentially know from your online shopping that it's going to arrive in a couple of days, it turns out that that's almost more satisfying than going to a shop and getting it immediately. So it's the anticipation of the reward. It's the anticipation of that purchase. So it's the hit of dopamine that really is challenging for anyone who wants to kind of turn addiction around. Now, shopping is therapeutic, no doubt about it. Retail therapy is, uh, is definitely seen as something. And if you go and analyse people who are in high-pressure jobs, who are very well paid, believe it or not, they do a lot of retail therapy. Doctors do a lot of retail therapy. These are people who have a lot of uh, moral problems in their lives. They've got a lot of stress in their lives. And a lot of retail therapy goes on. And why is that? Well, because if you're a high earner, you can afford to make mistakes. So it doesn't really matter if you don't get quite the right book because you can buy the next one or you don't get quite the right car because you can sell it next year and get another one. So in a way, you're not as attached to the, to the things you're buying as somebody who's got very, very little money and has to really think things through. So consumer addiction is far more prevalent in high earners than it is in, say, people who are very modest. But it can also manifest itself in interesting ways. Uh, things like hoarding, uh, obviously shopping addiction, an overwhelming need to be sort of in style, in trend, um, getting the latest gear, the latest electronics. And what goes along with it when you do analyses and you talk to people is emptiness. So on the one hand, they're talking about getting things, having things, having the thrill of addiction, but at the other side, feeling empty and needing to go back and buy something else to continue to fill the addiction. So consumers, in a sense, are very, they're, they're sort of very vulnerable at certain times in their lives, but they're also vulnerable all the way through. Why is that? Because in modern society, particularly in the developed world, from the moment that you're born as a child, you're surrounded by, essentially, the message of consumerism. I mean, if you don't remember, I'll remind you, that after 
George Bush said, it is your patriotic duty to go out and spend. So essentially, this incentive is put at the very highest political level. So coming back to why do you and how do we think we can break the, the sort of this pervasive loop, it comes back to knowing who you are. And there's a couple of really interesting uh, studies and some older ones and some newer ones. One was done by Michael Marmot uh, called the Whitehall Study. And he showed that even amongst civil servants who are paid very similar amounts of money, salami slicing of differences, just the tiniest bit would cause a sort of high levels of stress amongst civil servants in this case. And they would spin off into different kinds of behaviors, some of which were addictive behaviors. And if you roll forward and ask, for example, uh, who, who on earth do you think you are if you're a, a banker sitting on your own in Canary Wharf with a quarter of a million pounds in the bank, your life expectancy, for example, is likely to be far less than the lady who is the chairman of the knitting club who's got a great social network. But it's also because she's not filling the kind of consumerist drive to buy things because it's essentially filled up by that social network as opposed to the individual that's on their own. So the bigger question is, how do you avoid this kind of addictive consumerism? So on a mass scale, it's difficult. We're just surrounded by it. I mean, it's literally everywhere we go. The media is also incredibly important in, in promoting that. Um, I, I'm not saying it's the cause of the consumerism, but it certainly fills a lot of gaps. And then financially, we're talking about feeding this machine. Essentially, you're taking yourself, you're buying things, you go into debt, you do more, you do more, and you spiral downwards. And that's the typical standard for any kind of addiction. So you're continuously seeking for things that will make you feel better. You're seeking things that will make you feel satisfied. Um, and these are all the classic symptoms of an addiction. Now, some people have said it's linked to genetics, and if you talk about uh, drug addiction and tobacco addiction, you can see that eventually, biochemically, your body gets particularly hooked onto it. But your body also gets hooked onto dopamine. So you can consume your way into an addiction, no doubt about it. And if you think about where we're going in terms of the planet, the emissions, and what all our purchases are doing, it's sort of like a suicidal pact that we've taken. You know, we're just consuming almost ad nauseum to the point where we haven't really connected what we're buying to what's actually happening to planet Earth. But it is happening. As I say, our per capita consumption patterns are, I won't say out of control, but they're pretty much close to it. So through this kind of self-control, loss of self-control, which I think Aldous Huxley wrote about in Brave New World, you see that... In a way, we have to come back to who we are. And if I was to tell you that one of the things that drug addicts do is they're very good at temporal discounting. In other words, they have a very high discounting. They want the immediate. And one of the things that we really have to work on is how do you engender, in the population at large, particularly young, amongst young people, this sense of, wait a moment, do not trigger that prefrontal cortex. Do not essentially go for the impulse, which is your amygdala, your immediate and intuitive response. How can we develop those executive skills that will enable people to take a step back, 
and actually ask the fundamental question, do I need to buy this at this particular moment? Now, I don't know if any of you came to a lecture that I gave earlier uh, in this series about malnutrition. And I made the point then, particularly in the developed world, that malnutrition has got two kind of bad sides to it. Obviously, it's very bad for you if you're malnourished, but it has a long-lasting effect on the development of the brain. As our diets and as our food addictions, in a sense, have taken over, what would be a concatenation of the worst would be that children particularly, and particularly in countries where maybe there isn't such a propensity of fresh and good food, start to have problems in terms of their executive development because of malnutrition. Because in the end, they will become consumers of the future. So it is absolutely essential that we treat all of these sort of addictions together and that we try to continuously come back and say, what is going to give us the best mental health? Because as we go forward in the future, this is a very complex thing. I mean, you can worry about plastics, you can worry about packaging, you can worry about emissions, you can worry about labour, you can worry about all those things. But actually, they should all be part of your decision-making when you go to the shops to buy something. So rather than say we have all the answers and there are solutions, there is one very clear solution to essentially dealing and ending consumer addiction. And that is really training ourselves, and we can do that at a later age, but certainly in making sure that part of our education to young people is to take a breath, understand, and just think about what went into making that product, even as you take it off the shelf. How did it get made? And just that mere understanding of how something has arrived on the shelf in front of you gives you enough moments for the dopamine to kind of subside in your brain and for other things to take over in the prefrontal cortex. It's a millisecond that it takes, and that's all we need. And so in a way, that's the kind of simple solution, but also price matters. Thank you. <laughs>